Hello and welcome to Andraste's Gadfly episode 5! Woo! And this is also the beginning of our second season, for those who don't know, because we are a quarterly podcast, so we put out four episodes a year, which we did last year. Go team. And we aim to do again, and now it's on the record. <laughs> I'm Jill Fellows. And I'm Kira Thompsons. And if you're new to the show, Kira and I are philosophers who are also Dragon Age fans. So we like to get together and geek out by applying philosophical ideas and theories and arguments to the Dragon Age games. And today, Kira, we're looking at all things gender, right? Everything gender. Everything gender. In Dragon Age. <laughs> In Dragon Age. <laughs> So let's start with our first segment, which we call First Run and Headcanon, where we talk a little bit about our experience playing the games and start kind of applying this gender framework. So I want to ask you, Kara, for your first run, did you play male or female in Dragon Age Origins? I played a female. It was a female elf, a city elf. A female. Oh, right. Yeah. I think we've talked about that very content warning opening to Dragon Age Origins. Yes. And in Dragon Age 2, I also played as a female. And then in Dragon Age Inquisition, it was a female. (laughs) Because at that point, I was really excited, you know, to be able to choose gender and choose female characters that could play the same roles as male characters. This was very early in my gaming career. Right. No, and that's something worth keeping in mind, especially as we work through Dragon Age and gender, is that when we think about gender in video games in general, just the option of picking a female protagonist is not that common. It is not common. (laughs) Until recently. And even now, it's still... It's still not super common. Like you see it more now. It's not totally novel and exciting necessarily anymore, but it's still, I don't think, super common. Yeah. So in Dragon Age 2, I believe I played a male rogue the first time through, which was super fun. The dual wielding rogue, because I liked like the smoke and popping out behind people. And The effects were cool. Yeah, the effects are great. I mean, the mage is probably more powerful, but the rogue, I don't know. I like the style. <laughs> and in Inquisition... I believe, oh gosh, I stuck with Rogue. I played another female. So I was female in Origins and Inquisition and male in Dragon Age 2. But I did another Rogue, which I found harder than I wanted it to be. <laughs> the dual-wielding Rogue. I think the bow and arrow Rogue is is a little bit more user-friendly. <laughs> That's what I did. With me, it's always the ranged attacks. <laughs> yeah, I usually gravitate towards the ranged stuff. But I had so enjoyed the melee Rogue into I thought like I'm gonna do this again but the dynamic the play play style is very different in Inquisition from two and like true. none of the skills I had developed in two as a rogue really helped no. me <laughs> I found the play style different in all of them but what I found really cool across all three was again putting it through the the lens of gender yeah let's forget about play style and come back to gender <laughs> but the thing is the the play style is not affected by your gender choice. Yes. Right. So regardless of what gender you choose, the play mechanics are all the same. All of the moves are all the same. There's no difference in the combat and in a lot of the ways in which the armor and weapons function. Like, yeah, there's no difference in terms of gender. Which is nice. Yeah. Yeah. As somebody who came from World of Warcraft, where... My male characters would be fully clothed in armor, and then I would pick up the same armor for a female avatar that I was playing, and when I put it on, it was like a bikini. <laughs> suddenly, less materials were used in the construction of these. Suddenly, so much less material, but it cost the same amount. <laughs> Just like in real life. It's true. <laughs> but yeah, no, that's really refreshing about the Dragon Age games, right? So... The armor basically looks the same and the the mechanics and the weapons and all that stuff. It, it's not gender dependent. It doesn't change. Any other thoughts kind of in terms of your first run in headcanon regarding gender across any of these games? One of the things that struck me about my first 
run was with Dragon Age Origins. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Because of the way my second run was different. Okay. It was the comparison of the two. because So in my second run of Dragon Age Origins, I again chose a city elf, but it was male. Mm -hmm. And so just as a a trigger warning, it does involve sexual assaults. Yes. You start off... If you're a female character, basically getting taken, captured by a male character who kind of sweeps up all of the female elves. And it's, you know, you escaping. And I thought, okay, well, this was not what I expected it to start out like. But then when I played as the male character, I thought, okay, now I'm interested to see how this is going to be different. And the story is different. Mm-hmm. Where you're now a rescuer you are coming to you know rescue as a male elf (laughs) and I thought that was an interesting choice and I'm torn in two possible ways of it one in terms of pushing back against the narrative that men always have to come to the rescue of women very like mario (laughs) narrative in video games it exists outside of video games but i think of mario in video games very very dominant and so that was one way in which i reacted it's that sort of negative pushback because it's sort of the ah it's what i always see everywhere Mm -hmm. however on the other hand there's a certain realism there where depending on your gender, you're going to experience the world differently. And the, mm-hmm. in terms of the realism, it's like, yeah, this is how women experience life in a way that men don't. And so I have these very conflicting emotions about the Dragon Age origins origin story when it comes to the city elf in terms of these two very different narratives. Where they intersect, though, of course, is has nothing to do with gender. It has everything to do with the race, right? Where being an elf is, in so many ways, more important than gender. Yeah. But in this case, it's not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I take your point. So on the one hand, it would be really refreshing if we played a narrative where we didn't constantly see female characters put in this position of being survivors of sexual assault. Exactly. On the other hand, it is statistically true that women predominantly experience sexual assault to a much greater degree than men do. And so a narrative that reflects that difference. So it's you're telling the same story, but from two different perspectives is what ends up happening. The female elf character is the character that gets abducted, whether you're playing that character or not. Exactly. And the male elf character, if you're playing the male elf character, then they come to the rescue. Yeah. If you're playing the female, they give you agency, right? The male elf runs into the room to rescue you, but you rescue yourself. They give you the tools to rescue yourself. They toss you a sword or some kind of weapon. But I think if you're the male elf character, you get to do all the rescuing because you still get the agency. And on the one hand, I quite liked that when you're playing the female character, the male is in a supporting role helping you rescue yourself. Like I was on board with that. But it's not so satisfying that when you play the male character, (laughs) you are not in a supporting role because you're given agency. And so that does subtly change the story. So it's much more like Mario. (laughs) So, and I think some of this stuff is what has motivated me to want to talk about this in this podcast in terms of how I think Bioware generally is quite good at addressing a whole bunch of gender stuff. And so I want to sort of raise up examples of how they do that, I think, nicely in the context of gaming, which doesn't often do that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't think they're the best at it. I think there's other companies and some games that have pushed it a little bit further. So I, I kind of want to celebrate what they've done, but also point out ways in which they they sort of end up doing some things with gender that fall into some traps that I wish they would avoid. <laughs> right. It's a work in progress, exactly. as with most unlearning of patriarchal <laughs> norms. <laughs> I also want to flag a couple more things that I think we might talk about. And so one thing I noted, or I noticed in my first run of especially Dragon Age Origins, and especially contrasting it with Dragon Age 2 and Inquisition, 
is that in Origins, when you play a female human, which I actually didn't do in my first run, but I did in a subsequent run, there's a lot of comments of like, oh, a female warden, like that's unusual. And that's, I think, to mirror the idea that almost every character you play, except for the male human noble, they say this, right? So they're like, oh, an elf warden, like that's unusual. And oh, a dwarf warden. like. And so when you're playing the female human noble, what's unusual now is your gender. Now, what's funny is how I never noticed that. Yeah, it never, it's weird. It never got raised as something. <laughs> And I remember that in my second playthrough and thinking to myself like, oh, okay, maybe that means that human society in Thetis is more gender. There are more gender norms surrounding surrounding combat because nobody made a comment about that when I was like a dwarf duster, like rumbling in the Ozumar streets. Right. But a, a lot of people made a comment about the female human. And so I was like, I wonder if upper class human theta society has a lot of gen and it never comes up again. I think what would be interesting is to see how that connects with how you become a warden, right? So criminals (laughs) become wardens, people who are exposed to darkspawn, right? So the, the idea is that the way that you become a warden is often in a position where if you do have very gendered roles in a society, women may not be as prone and especially nobility women perhaps because of the privilege that would insulate them from ending up resorting to things that are considered to be criminal exactly so it might be more class based it might be and it really stood out to me because nobody makes that comment about a female hawk in dragon age 2 nobody's like oh you're a female engaging in combat like that's weird or or if bethany becomes a warden nobody says that that's weird and in Inquisition, I don't remember. Like, the wardens are led by a female in Inquisition. Exactly. And no one says anything. So that's something... You can encourage a female character to go become a warden. Yeah, yeah. And you're not like, I know this is going to be weird because there are very few women wardens, but you should still do it. <laughs> and it, it may just be something that changed in game development between Origins and 2 that they decided not to have this kind of emphasis anymore. But that's never held us back from theorizing before. <laughs> No. I mean, in terms of game development, maybe they could realize that, oh, hey, maybe we shouldn't be doing this because that does sound kind of sketchy. And then we could canonically rationalize it by what something like 10 years passes. Yeah, 10 years passes. Could could enough social progress be made in that time? Yeah. I think given the lack of other indications that gender roles are rigid, in these societies, I, I'm less inclined to be against that, that no, maybe they were just on the cusp already of moving towards even greater equality. I'm, I'm okay with headcanning it that way to make it make in sense. In the 10 years between Origins and kind of Hawk really establishing themselves in Dragon Age 2, at the end of Dragon Age 2, so I think that whole span is about a decade. Things just, yeah, progress was made. A lot of progress has been made in the last 10 years on Earth, so why not in Thetis? Exactly. Cool. And then I also just kind of want to flag for thinking, can we talk about Morrigan and Isabella? We could. (laughs) I'm not opposed to it. Our thoughts on these characters have come out in previous podcasts. They have. So I think I've said in a previous episode that both Morrigan and Isabella were the kind of characters that when I first met them, especially Isabella, because Dragon Age 2 was my first entry point into this series that I kind of dismissed assuming, oh, well, those are characters that have been created for heterosexual men. Oh, absolutely. That was my response. And and it wasn't until later that I was like, oh, you know, like, actually, these are pretty deep and interesting people. I encountered Morrigan in Dragon Age Inquisition because that was the first thing I played. Mm-hmm. And so I really didn't like her in terms <laughs> of how she's introduced because you you don't get the backstory you don't get how she was raised by her mother. Uh, you don't get any of that. By the witch of the wilds in a swamp. Yeah, you don't get any backstory that makes me at all sympathetic to her. So without that backstory, when she came in as this witch of the court and was, I just thought, incredibly condescending. And when you're first introduced to her there, she's she's wearing a dress, you know, which is like a ball gown. But then when you get back to Skyhold... She's back to her, I'm going to wear 
nothing. It's like, where's the rest of your shirt? Where is it? What happened? It doesn't look comfortable. It doesn't. Um, Especially since Skyhold is in the mountains. Her costume could, it would be generous to say, it basically looks like a bunch of straps, I think. Very generous. Maybe, and a bit of a skirt. It's definitely something that struck me as, okay, this is male fan service. That's because nobody else dresses like that. Nobody else presents like that. And I thought, okay, this is where it came in. (laughs) And then when I went back and played the other two, when I encountered her, I thought, eh, yeah, I still don't like her very much. (laughs) No. Even with the compelling backstory. And so it, she's never been a character that I, I found very interesting. And now what's it? I think what's for me, what's key here is that I dislike them mostly because of their personalities. And I disliked the game developers <laughs> for putting them in there like that. Oh, okay. Okay. <laughs> That's where I kind of channeled my dislike. I'm sort of like, I could get past their, their appearance and like them despite their appearance. But there is nothing in their character that I actually like. (laughs) And uh, to be honest, when it comes to Isabella, if I had to describe myself as a person, it would probably be so boringly, lawfully, you know, good that the fact that she was almost the precipitator of all of the (laughs) the major conflict in Dragon Age 2, where... We find out that she's had the book. She's the problem. And part of me is just like, you, you. Mm, traitor. Traitor. Betrayal. So, but that was anger at character. Yeah. Which is good, I think. Yeah. I mean, I found them both funny. I actually do like Oregon is, is screaming funny at times, she especially is. in Origins. She's so sarcastic yeah. and, and. And it's so dry. It's so dry. You know, so and I, I actually really like the voice actress. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I like the way she voices her. So there's a lot that I I don't dislike about her character, but it's her actual character character mm-hmm. <laughs> in the end made me dislike her. Okay, so our second segment called The Gadfly and the Dragon is where we bring some philosophical concepts, theories, and ideas to bear on our theme for the games, which is gender. So Kira, what did you want to talk about? I wanted to talk about a bunch of stuff. Awesome. (laughs) So this is an area where I don't feel the need to reference particular philosophers so much. Um, And this is more informed by gender women's studies Mm -hmm. that I've done rather than particular philosophy. So feminist philosophy, gender women's studies sort of intersect here. Um, And I think what I want to do is start with the idea of gender essentialism. Perfect. Because this is both a point where you can hold up the game as sort of pushing back or upholding this idea. And gender essentialism is simply the notion that the concepts of men and women essentially connect with a biological reality. So men and women have certain essential characteristics that make them men and women. Uh, It's often a biological aspect to it, where women are seen as having certain sex parts, men are seen as having other sex parts. They, We've seen it being cashed out in terms of hormones, in terms of how much testosterone you have or estrogen. And the idea is that on this view, we should be able to pick out what is essentially male and female, which connects to the ideas of men and women. Right. So to be a woman is to have those ex- those essential characteristics. An essential biological embodied feature that makes you a woman. And it sometimes goes beyond the biological to uh, characteristics that we would characterize as masculine or feminine. Right. Right. So feminine 
features are seen as essential to being a woman. So women are by nature more caring. There are so many air quotes happening here. <laughs> there are, there are. Um, so it's on this view. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That, you know, women are seen as being more naturally disposed to caring for children, um, that they are more emotional, men are more rational. Yeah. And so these sorts of essential characteristics are seen as attached to the categories of men and women. And so what you get as a result is a worldview that pigeonholes people into a gender binary mm -hmm. where you're either a man or you're a woman and the world doesn't make sense beyond those categories. And if you don't fit those categories, there is something wrong with you yeah. that needs to be fixed. And I think I'd also like to add that the categories, the gender binary that comes out of this essentialism, the categories are often seen to, again, using my air quotes, like complement each other, right? So you already kind of pointed out that they're often defined in opposition to each other. Women as emotional, men as rational. Women as indecisive, men as decisive. Women as caring and nurturing and men as like authoritative. <laughs> and if that's a worldview that you subscribe to, then you end up with this place that there's nothing in between. Everything's a dichotomy, Yeah. right? Everything is either one or the other. There's also just this really interesting, I'm, I know we said we weren't going to bring in theories, but was it when you no, were no, talking, there was this, there's this really interesting article written by Sarah Richardson called Sexing the X. And it's about how you can essentialize. So you talked about essentializing two particular parts of the body, for example, or particular hormones, genitals, what have you, facial features. But Richardson also points out that a lot of this essentializing work has recently been happening at the chromosomal level. Yes. Where they are applying essential features to X and Y chromosomes. So you'll get things like the X is the stable wife to the Y as the, you know, energetic husband, or the X is the caring big sister to the Y as the troublemaking little brother. And you're just like, oh, what is happening? I feel the need to insert a throwing up emoji. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, it's, it's so bizarre because it sounds scientific, but it's not scientific. Like... It's also unsurprising, given the way throughout history, the perception of gender has been sort of overlaid onto biology in terms of in reproductive uh, theories that were, you know, well before we had microscopes and could see things going on. But even after we could see what was going on with microscopes, sperm being described as active and eggs being described as passive. Yeah. And these mirror these these categories, uh, and so it's entire. I'm entirely unsurprised that yeah. they would go even deeper to chromosomes. So what we would want to see happen is that the science would inform our views about gender, sex, and sexuality. And instead, what seems to happen is our pre-existing views about gender, sex, and sexuality inform and distort our scientific findings. Yes, and the problem is that the this approach to gender essentialism, so thinking that there are these essential characteristics which attach to biology and attach therefore to the category, is it results in thinking about people in ways that doesn't recognize the wide variety that we naturally find. Mm -hmm. So for example, people who are intersex are often when they're born, uh, the, the practice at least a decade ago, was for the doctors to assign a gender. And so what they would do, they would engage in surgical reconstruction to make the baby more closely resemble what they thought it should look like in terms of sex organs. And so this sort of practice, though, was shown to be quite harmful to the children as they grew up. But this binary doesn't allow for and in between, because you have to categorize things into these binaries. And it also doesn't nicely deal 
with the way in which we, I think increasingly are thinking about how transgender people experience gender as something that is distinct from sexual organs, sexual presentation, that sex and gender are not the same, but gender essentialism Mm -hmm. absolutely reinforces that idea. Right, because gender essentialism says the gender unproblematically, air quotes, arises from the sex body. And not only does this cause a lot of problems for intersex people, for trans folk, it also can cause a lot of problems for cis folk, right? Yes. So if, for example, you're a woman and you're not particularly nurturing. Or particularly feminine. Yeah. Or or the other thing that often happens is if it's attached to your sex body, what happens, for example, when you go through menopause? Or what happens if you need a hysterectomy? Or, you know, if your body changes, which, spoiler alert, all of our bodies change over the course of our lives, what happens? And there are a lot of people who have had a lot of issues dealing with these kinds of changes in terms of am I still a woman or am I still a man because of this essentialist attachment that we have, at least in part because of that. And it starts from birth. And I think this is this is one of the things that I often emphasize to my students is that gender gets created as categories from the minute you're born. It's it's odd how people need to know the gender of a being in order to properly interact with it. And introduce it into the world. And introduce it into the world. And there was a a couple in Toronto who decided not to reveal the gender of their child to the public. And they were accused of child abuse, of denying their child gender, uh, whereas their response was, well, my child knows what sex organs they have. (laughs) It's, It's just none of anyone else's business. And so I think there's a lot of reason to think that gender essentialism is a problem. And I think we see resistance to that nicely shown with Simone de Beauvoir's work. So this is where I do want to talk about a particular person. I I think her analysis is absolutely right when it comes to how we should think about the concept of woman as gender. So de Beauvoir thinks that sex and gender are something that you can separate. She's credited in many ways with this distinction in terms of how we understand it now, because what she said was, and this is a a mangled quote, she's French, I'm not. Loosely 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 paraphrased. paraphrased. She says, one is not born woman, one becomes woman. Yeah. And so the idea is, you're born into the world, but you're not a woman until you are socialized into the practices of what it means to be a woman. Mm-hmm. So the expectations of womanhood are entirely social, that they are assumptions built into the notion of femininity, as I mentioned before, the expectations people have of women versus men. And while she didn't address the way that being a man is also gendered, it applies just as much to men as it does to women. Yeah. That one isn't born a man either. One becomes a man in terms of that gender category. And this is, a, I think, is a resistance to the idea of the gender binary and the gender essentialism. Because if we're not born into these categories, they're not fixed. Yeah. That if there's no essential aspect to uh, what these categories attach to, then you can't say this is how we're going to narrowly define woman and man. And so de Beauvoir thought that the way in which women are socialized creates the expectations that women then internalize. Yeah. So growing up, we're given options of, you know, toys that reflect gender norms that girls are given dolls, boys are given trucks, you know, these very common things. And so when I say that it starts at a very early age, the science backs this up. Uh, There was a neuroscientist who was studying 
how early gender differences appear. And her hypothesis was that it was parental differences, like parenting differences, the way in which parents responded to their babies and toddlers. So she found, for example, that when it came to toddler play, parents were much more attentive to girls when they were doing more risky behaviors, where they would hover over girls and say, be careful much, much more often than boys. Right. So as a result, what you get from such an early age is a divergence in behaviors that the gender essentialists want to say is biological. But a lot of the evidence seems to suggest it's not biological. It, it's that nature-nurture distinction. It's nurture significantly. And that's how de Beauvoir frames this, that we are nurtured into our gender rather than biologically born into it. Right. So you said, for example, if we think about assigning gender at birth or increasingly before birth. <laughs> yes. yes. <laughs> assigning gender in utero. Confirmed <laughs> at birth. Yeah, I I was thinking there of the analogy of like the character creation model, right? Yeah. So the character creation model comes up and the first two choices you have are your species and your gender, right? Yep. And you have to pick that before you can pick anything else that has to be assigned and confirmed. And then you kind of get to go on to like change your facial facial features, change your hair color, all that kind of stuff. And that really, in in some ways, to me, very similar to this kind of need to be able to know the gender of a baby before you can welcome it into the world. It's like the game has reinforced this, right? We need to know the gender of your playable character before anything else can be done. And so I just kind of wanted to draw that out as a way in which this this fundamental problematic feature of reality is being reproduced. It is absolutely being reproduced in that binary way. Yeah, you could have, because there are only the two choices. You could have only those two choices. Um, I encountered this when I was helping um, a group with uh, video scenarios that they were doing for simulations. And they said what we wanted to do was figure out how to include uh, what they, they wanted to be trans-inclusive. And so they were really struggling with how to f- get male, female voices in ways that would be that inclusive. And I said, well, one suggestion is to not call them male and female voices. Instead, what you could get are just different pitched voices and then allow the person who is going into the scenario to pick the level at which they actually want to identify with the voice. Yeah. And so removing it from the binary is something that's possible. So you could have a variety of, for example, physical body types. Yeah. A variety of voices. And I mean, women don't always have classically feminine voices they anyway. Don't. They really and don't. men don't always have classically masculine voices. So just having kind of a spectrum of body types, a spectrum of voices, removing that decision of male and female right from the character creation screen Now, I understand why I think from a game development point of view, that's quite difficult because with the amount of dialogue, I'm thinking like Dragon Age Inquisition, there is so much dialogue. Yeah. And if I recall correctly, they even said like certain romantic options were not available because of the way in which it would require reanimating so much of things like cutscenes and things like that. Yeah. I, I kind of, I get it. But there are certain things that they could have allowed for, I think. So, for example, you can put a beard on a female dwarf. In Inquisition. Yeah, in Inquisition. Nice. Right. Yeah, you can also do Adam's apples, I think. Yes. In Inquisition. Right. So you can, you can, with dwarves, <laughs> right? But only dwarves. <laughs> only dwarves can get the facial hair. And yet, within the game they have present trans characters. Yes. Right. So there is an awareness in the game development that they can push these boundaries. And it's 
It's something that is recognized and acknowledged, but yet in game creation, you're not given the flexibility just purely on appearance. And I think with appearance, that's probably not going to be as difficult. But once you pick the male and female character, you lock in certain things. And this is where I'm going to bring up the thing that made me want to do this episode in the first place. What was what was the impulse for this episode, Kara? So it's the walk. <laughs> and run, it's right? The run and the walk. So when, when you are playing a female character, the walk that you have is so exaggeratedly feminine that I sometimes feel my hips are just gonna dislocate as I'm walking along. <laughs> The hip sway it's, is so big, especially when running. Like it is just wee, it, wee, uh, it's wee. distracting <laughs> in not a good way. Right. In not a good way. That sometimes I if I have a party with me and there's a male character in the party, I will switch to the male character just for the running. <laughs> um it's, well, I think part of it is that every time I look at it, I keep thinking, well, that's not how I run. <laughs> Right, And I know a lot of women probably don't run that way, particularly women who are physically active. That's not trained in combat. How <laughs> women would run in combat. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so this is the thing that I just and I played as a female character in my last run through. And it was in this run through that I was uh, not doing a lot of fast traveling. Uh, because I was trying to get so much of the dialogue that happens between characters. It's so good. The dialogue is so I great. I never ride a horse in that game because I want to hear the dialogue. Yeah, I never ride a horse because the dialogue is where you get so much of the infill story of how the relationships yeah. are. And they're so funny. So many of them are so funny. And you get oh, insight. The party banter is so You good. get insight into the characters. But I, the, the hips way... <laughs> just made me so angry and it's not just the character you select but it's also the characters you could take over right so Cassandra I I tried it with Cassandra I tried it with Vivian I tried it with all of them and sure enough the gate was the same in all of them Mm -hmm. and it's that sort of decision that makes me angry it reminds me too way back so the most recent assassin's creed i believe lets you choose between male and female but there was an earlier assassin's creed where you could only choose a male playable character and people complained and one of the reasons that as i remember the developers gave was well they couldn't offer you the choice of a female because they would have to do motion capture for an entirely different body and i'm like no like don't no, you wouldn't. don't give me the hip sway run don't do it like just just use the same motion capture. It will be fine. <laughs> and it's not just in the, you know, in, when you're engaged in that action in, in the play, but also in cutscenes. Yeah. So it was when I started paying attention to it, like the, the way that Cassandra walks, she has a hip sway in the cutscenes yeah. that it all of a sudden it was like, Okay, what? What is going on here? Oh, Liliana at the Winter Palace when she's when she's announced and she walks. Yes. Woo. Yeah, oh, if you have female characters in that, it's all just like walking down a fashion show yeah. runway. How else would you walk when being introduced to an empress? I ask you, Kira. <laughs> Not like that. <laughs> Particularly given my character is usually an elf who's probably going to be like, I am so uncomfortable right now. Right. Being graceful is not going to be my major thought. <laughs> I'm going to stomp down here. <laughs> um, so, and again, I get that having, being able to choose multiple different, you know, physical ways in which you do things, it can be, it's going to be very time consuming. Okay. I'm going to give a shout out to another game. Yeah. We don't usually do this, but I want to give an example of how it's done really, really well. I love it. And it's in The Sims. Okay. So one of the things that in The Sims you get, so particularly in Sims 4, which is the most recent version of it, you can choose the way your Sim walks 
like such a variety of different walks. Like they can slump around, they can stride confidently. Like there's a whole range of behaviors that you can, there's a sexy walk and it's not tied to gender. It's not tied so to your You can your do male. like a male sim hip sway. Yeah, absolutely. I love it. It's really great. And they also allow you to completely choose the physical characteristics. So, mm -hmm. and and they also, because The Sims is basically a simulation game where you are meeting the needs of your sim. So the way that they now sort things like gender is they don't ask you whether your character is male or female. Instead, they'll ask things like, can your character pee standing up? Can your character get someone pregnant or be pregnant? Mm -hmm. Right. So there is such a variety in the ways that people can be presented. And when it comes to things like clothes, they describe things as masculine or feminine, but it's available to everybody. So you can right. get gendered men who are wearing feminine clothing. Like, right? like ball gowns. Exactly. I love that. It's really... Men in ball gowns is amazing. It is. More of them should do it. And so the idea is it's clearly possible in this sort of game, now mm -hmm. as a non-developing gamer person, I don't know if that's possible in these other games, but we don't need the binary. Yeah. So let's move then to our third segment, since we brought in a lot of discussion of the game. Let's talk about the game as frame, which is the segment where we discuss the way in which the game is framing our current topic, or the games, I should say. So our current topic is gender. How, how do the Dragon Age games present gender? We've already said they reinforce a binary in the character creation and in the walk and the run that's so motivated Kira to have this topic. That's where I get angry. And in the male gaze. When it yeah. comes to Isabella and Morrigan. In terms of wardrobe, yes. Yeah. But there are ways in which I think the game frames gender as irrelevant. Yes. In ways that I kind of like. So, for example, when it comes to the rulers, there's queens, there's kings, there's powerful women. Yeah. Uh, the roles of power are not just for men. So we've already mentioned that, like, the wardens are led by a woman there's the Empress of Thetis, but in exactly. Dragon Age 2, the leader of Kirkwall is a man. It seems very diverse in terms of who is in positions of power. It is very diverse. And the position that the playable, the, the character that you play is also not dependent on gender. You right. can be whoever you want. You could be a man or a woman, and it's not going to change the central story. Right. So like an in Inquisition, if you're playing as a female, it's not suddenly like, well, oh, you can't be the leader. So I guess Cullen will be the leader and you'll be like an advisor. Exactly. There's no pushback against a woman being in a, a role that is such an iconic role. Yeah. In the actual playable game, that's how it how it plays out. Now, in all of the advertising and all of the merch and all of the you know, stuff that comes with the game. So much of it is framed as a male inquisition. Yeah. Leader, which yep. bugs yep. me. There are usually like two images, but the image that ends up on the front of the box, if you actually buy a physical game and on the posters and in the trailers is always the image of the inquisitor yeah. as male. On my incredibly lovely mouse pad. Do you it's, have a Dragon Age mouse pad? I do. Oh, that's awesome. It's a huge one. It fits everything on my desk on it. That's amazing. But and it's a, it's a male. It's that iconic fist raised to close a rift, male inqu inquisitor. No hip sway no. there. <laughs> but in the society itself, with the exception of this weird warden thing in the first game, generally it feels like people can be in positions of power. People could be good or evil and it doesn't, their gender doesn't matter. When it comes to whether you choose the Templars or the mages, you know, women have roles in both. And 
are strong characters strongly evil sometimes yeah yeah <laughs> and so there seems like well-rounded real characters exactly. not stereotypes not just stereotypes and i think that is a very equitable way to present gender and i think it pushes back against the idea of gender roles where because of this gender essentialism you have to do certain things right and i mean sometimes I remember when I first played the game, I remember being surprised by it. it was like, oh, that was a woman soldier I just blew up. I didn't, like, <laughs> didn't realize that. I that. <laughs> um, so I think in some ways the game presents things in a very equitable way. However, the gender-based roles that do exist, I think are interesting ones because the ones that I immediately thought of was the black and the white divine. Right, the leaders of- The Chantry. Yeah, the Chantry. And then also the Black Divine is the leader of the Chantry in Tevinter. In Tevinter, which is the evil enemy. The evil Chantry. The evil Chantry, I guess. Although, like, the Chantry in Ferelden and Orle is not exactly the good Chantry. So no. But it's in the evil and the maybe less <laughs> evil Chantry. Which is led by a woman. So the, yes. the, the Divine in Ferelden is always going to be a woman and there isn't even a question like no it's not like oh maybe a man could run this time for divine right it's it's never an option um so if you're playing as a man and are like well could i be the divine no don't be an idiot it's always going to be a woman and you know when dorian brings up how the divine in Tevinter is a man right so now what's interesting is i think there could if you really want to squint you could kind of see where in Ferelden and those areas where you've got the the white divine, it's kind of upholding the purity of women in some way, maybe. Sure. Um, the use of the word white, I heavily... White and black divine white is and a black, other binary. Right? That's another thing that's problematic here. Um, and the, the black divine into Vinter being the evil one. The more evil one. The more evil one, right? And being a man, like that's, it's a binary on top of a binary, right? It is. And so given that the Chantry is generally terrible anyway, I don't want to read too much into the idea that there are specific gender roles. I think the dominant characters you see who are part of the Chantry are women. There is occasionally a man here and there. Yeah. And I believe Chancellor Roderick is there at the start of Inquisition. And he dies. Yeah, he dies. No, the Chantry, especially in Inquisition, where we get to know more about it. We know a bit about it in Dragon Age 2, where Anders blows it up. Um, but by Inquisition, where we know more about it and we talk to more people, it is definitely framed as a female-driven organization. Absolutely. Right? Like, the Divine is a woman. The left and the right hands of the Divine are women. <laughs> And I believe that men in the Chantry, so if we're talking about the Chantry itself and not like Templars and stuff like that, but just the people serving in the Chantry, men in the Chantry are in minor roles. And a lot of this seems to come from the legacy of Andraste, right? Yeah. So the major religious figure in this organization is a woman. And so as a result, the organization itself has elevated women yeah. in a way that I think is actually somewhat historically believable it makes given the sense. way a lot of religious organizations work in real life exactly so in terms of framing you know gender roles it's not beyond it's not because women are better so in, in that way i think the game frames gender in a way that is be, because of these lack of really really defined gender roles in the society more overall you could be a fighter, you could be a mage, you could be whatever. What restricts you more than gender will be whether you're an elf or a dwarf. Yeah, or a mage. Or a mage, yes, right? So your profession yeah. or your race is going to be more problematic. Yeah. You can't be a mage if you're a dwarf. That restricts what you can do in yeah. terms of your innate characteristics. Um, yeah. If you're an elf, you can't be buff. Like that's yeah. one of the complaints I've heard. I want a buff elf. I'm like, well... Suck no, they're up. all willy. <laughs> they're all so skinny. Yeah, <laughs> right. Yeah. But those are constraints that are built within the idea of human dwarf versus elf in terms yeah. of 
race differences. I also think it's quite interesting, this idea that, so we don't get necessarily a story as to why women dominate in the Chantry. In terms of, we don't get an in-world story, but we do get this history that suggests to us how this came to be. Yes. Through kind of the importance of Andraste and this kind of organization that's built around this legendary female figure and how that might affect the gender roles or gender norms or gender expectations of women in Thetis several centuries later. And I think that actually sort of supports Beauvoir, right? This idea that Andraste's legacy is still having an effect. It is. And it's something that is going to be related to perceptions of what's appropriate. Because you can see in Tevinter, you've got a you've got a male divide. You've got a, a divide yeah, yeah. man. And it it's not going to be that different. Yeah. Right. So I think in terms of framing gender in a sort of different way. In terms of those, I think in particular gender roles across Thetis more generally, that they, the game successfully resists the the sort of gender binary essentialism when it comes to gender roles. What's interesting, I think, too, is it pushes again it pushes back against that gender essentialism when it comes to gender identity as well, where it has a trans character where we have Creme. Um, who I, I think, love Krem. I love Krem. Krem is a great character and is one of the reasons I will never kill the Charger. The Charger. <laughs> Can um, I say something? Yes. It's kind of incidental about Krem, but one thing I love about Krem, which isn't really related to what we're talking about, is how how he sits on chairs. <laughs> so I read somewhere that this was a glitch that the game developers fought so hard to fix. And then they were like, well, we can't. And now like... This is an iconic thing about Creme. Creme perches on the backs of chairs and tons of gamers love this. I love it. (laughs) I thought it was just a glitch and then I just was like, is it? I don't know anymore. It looks kind of intentional. Like it does. I know people who perch on the backs of chairs like that. There's a running joke that people who are queer don't know how to use chairs properly. Oh my goodness. There absolutely is this running joke in the queer community of how you don't, (laughs) you know you're queer or you know, you know, you're a gay, lesbian, bisexual because you don't sit properly on chairs. You perch on arms, or you sit cross-legged, or you sit on the back. And I, that's lovely. Yeah, so that it's it's kind of funny how it fits with that funny running joke. It was a glitch that needed to happen. It absolutely <laughs> is. Now, what's interesting with the Creme character that I really like is I didn't realize at first. Like, it, there was nothing obvious about it um, until you actually go with Iron Bull in a cutscene and meet all of the chargers and you get to talk with them individually. And then it's brought up as a thing. Yeah, you're prompted that you can ask Krem about his gender. You can ask about gender. And now what's interesting is I never have. I never have because I'm always... And maybe I should just save it and just do it one time and not feel bad about it because they are fictional characters. But it always strikes me as in asking that question, I'm reinforcing the binary. (laughs) Yeah. I was hoping we would talk about this because I'm really of two minds about that conversation. I have done it once. Most of the time I don't do it. And in part, this is just because to me, I've just met these people, right? If I'm role playing. And it strikes me as incredibly rude. Yes. Um, yes. And and like, you know, if at some point Krem and I become bosom buddies and he wants to share with me, awesome. But like for me to probe the very first time I meet him seems very yeah. improper. And I can't do it with anybody else. I can't ask anybody else nope. like about their gender. So this is specifically pointing yes. Krem out as a trans character. I did do it once. And I'm of two minds about it. And I, I don't know what I think. So I'm just going to tell you my two minds. So on the one hand, it still strikes me as incredibly rude. And as something that reinforces the transness of Krem's character in a way that I don't think needed to happen, which paradoxically points Krem out as existing outside of the binary. Yes. On the other hand, as you just said, Krem is a fictional character. I can't hurt Krem by asking these questions. It feels like I am. Yeah. But I can't. And I was allowed to ask Krem questions that if 
if somebody has never really interacted with a trans person, doesn't really know how to do it, is curious and doesn't know where to get answers, in some ways, the questions that you can ask Creme and the way Creme responds provides a less harmful place to explore things where you're making mistakes by asking these questions, but the mistakes aren't causing microaggressions against an actual real human being, exactly. if that makes sense. So I have a question for you then. Are the answers ones that actually provide meaningful explanations when it comes to people wanting to understand what it means to be transgender? It's been a while since I asked, because as I said, I'm normally uncomfortable. So I'm going (laughs) off memory. My sense of it is that it did resonate from what I know from reading trans authors and and yeah, that, that yeah. kind of, and re- researching this stuff. The one thing that I do kind of wish, although maybe it, it doesn't work in terms of facilitating dialogue is for Creme to push back a little bit right. and be like, this is inappropriate yes. or something like that. That doesn't happen. Right. But the rest of it, as far as I know, speaking as a cis person did resonate with what I've read and what I've researched. Yeah. And I think that is again, a way in which the game can frame how, we explore yeah. these ideas. And so that people who haven't thought about it before now have an opportunity to think about it and get responses, which coming from a real person would be experienced as a microaggression, mm-hmm. particularly when you've just met somebody. Particularly. Um, yeah, this is not yeah, a close and, friend. <laughs> and I think it's also important to note, I mean, how old is the game now? Yeah. It's, it's not a new game. I think it was 2014. So this is an old game. Getting up to a decade. And we have, I think, even more trans visibility now than we did back then. So when they developed this, I think they were really pushing boundaries in a way that other games weren't. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I think that's actually quite laudable. (laughs) Because, yeah, the other concern that I have about Creme, and this is the game is frame again, is that the voice actor for Creme is a cis woman. And that strikes me as incredibly problematic and potentially something that wouldn't fly today. I don't know how well it flew 10 years ago, but... Yeah, and what's interesting is whenever we get the question of when we have diversity in the representations in media and, you know, things like voice actors, how important is it that the people who are being represented are the ones who are representing themselves? And I think that's so Mm -hmm. important. Because if we're thinking about how these games affect people, (laughs) it's not just in the games, but also like in movies, when you have trans people who are not being played by trans actors. Yeah. And it's, it's reinforcing in so many ways, the idea that these people don't exist in reality, Mm -hmm. right? That that's the message when you don't have actual representation in the actors themselves, because they're out there. People, people who want to do voice yeah, acting yeah. are out there who are in these communities. And I think that is one area where I think the game is, is legitimately come under criticism for how they cast yeah. uh, the voice actors. Yeah. And, but I think one of the things about pushing back against that gender essentialism is having this character present is an implicit nod to we're rejecting the idea of gender essentialism Mm -hmm. and is one of the ways in which pushing back. The concern is always going to be, and this is sort of the the turfy argument, the trans exclusionary radical feminists who are going to say, well, danger, danger. What happens is that if we, if we recognize transgender as legitimate, they will say is that we are enforcing the gender binary, because what we're doing is we're still forcing people into these two categories of man and woman. We're just replacing the characteristics and it's now just all what you identify as socially. And the the problem with that is you don't need to take that step. That, That doesn't, that is not the natural consequence of recognizing people who are transgendered as legitimately women and men in their respective categories. 
Or non-binary. Or non-binary. Exactly. So when it comes to the way in which I think the game pushes back against things like role models and so on, I actually think it 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 does legitimately a pretty good job. <laughs> Especially for a decade old game. Like it's it's hard to remember the way things were a decade ago, but And I'll be really excited to see how the new game they're developing yes. is going to look. Particularly given how, from what I've seen, and perhaps I'm mistaken, that they have diversity in the developers who are yeah. doing the actual development of the game. Yeah. So that makes me excited that perhaps some of these things won't be replicated in the same way. So before we end today, Kara, shall we move on to section four, A Modern Girl in Thetis, which is the segment where we kind of try and sum up everything we've learned. Can we take anything from the game into our modern lives or vice versa? <laughs> what, what have we accomplished today? <laughs> One of the things I like about the way in which you can choose what gender you play is you can't play with gender. Yeah. I, I played a male rogue. Yeah. What's interesting is my choices of gender, particularly in Dragon Age Inquisition, have absolutely nothing to do with what gender I want and have everything to do with what romance story I want. Yeah. Which is interesting. And we haven't really talked about that, although we did discuss romance and stuff in, in a previous And we're going to come around and do another romance episode in a while. Because <laughs> we only talked about Dragon Age 2. We have two other games That's to talk true. about. Uh, but when it comes to the role that gender plays in my gameplay it really doesn't matter much yeah it really doesn't it's a series of games where I don't always feel like it's out of place that when I even when I'm playing a male character if I'm playing like a male elf or I mean I play elves that's just what I do that generally it hasn't significantly affected how I think about the game. And there's something kind of freeing about that because I think gender is still in the 21st century here in North America, very foundational to our experiences of reality. And it's it's really nice to enter this fictional space where I can choose whichever of the two gender options they give me, I want. It would be nice if there was more of a spectrum, but whatever. And I can still do whatever I want with that. Right. So when my partner played Inquisition for the first time, he played a male with beautiful green eyeliner on. And you could do that. Right. The, uh, a male human can wear makeup. A female dwarf can have a beard. And and it doesn't affect the gameplay. Everybody's still totally like respectful of you, Inquisitor. And it's fine. And there's something really nice about stepping out of reality and into a space that's that's the future I want for us. <laughs> and it's really it nice. Is. And it's kind of, it's actually kind of fun playing with the absurd too with that as well. Um, I was just thinking of one of the recent download content allows you to, and I'm not sure which one it attaches to because my system just automatically had, I just added them all. And so I don't right. know what it attaches to, but it's a set of, oh, it's the spoils of the canary. Right. That's what it is. Where you basically can dress up regardless of what gender it is in harem pants. And very little else. Sure. And it's whoever you are. And it's like you could be and in the middle of Haven where it's cold and icy. And, a, um, and of course, what I immediately do is put it on solo. Of course. What else are you going to do? <laughs> but, you know, that sort of it's it can be playful that you can you can play with the gender expectations that we have in the real world and transcend them. Yeah. And there's something really freeing about that. Yeah. So I want more options for playfulness and transcending going forward. Yes. If game developers yes. are listening. But I'm also very happy with the ones that we have currently. Yeah. <laughs> and no more hip sways. Yes. Can we all just run like we're in serious combat and not on a catwalk? Unless we choose. I mean, if you want to give me the option of how I want to run, that's amazing. But I don't want it. <laughs> Game developers, if you're noting, Kira does not want it. <laughs> nope. Not at all. 
we will be back. We're doing four more this year, right? Sure. So we'll be back with another episode on an unspecified topic. Jill just drags me along for the ride. Yes. I will drag Kira back here for another episode on an unspecified topic. And until then, keep playing, everybody, and we'll talk to you soon. Bye. Bye.